If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the September 20th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. Out front and out loud since 1974. Striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S plus communities. I'm David Hunt in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome. On this outing, our show takes a walk with Team Sorted Lives back in 2019, just as they get ready to walk again on October 30th. And we look back at the It Gets Better project, which launched September 21st, 2010. But first, we observe the 20th anniversary of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, starting with Leonard Matlevich, the first gay service member to purposely out himself to the military to fight its ban on gays. Hello, I'm Ronald Gold, and this is Gay Alternatives. On March 7, 1975, Technical Sergeant Leonard Matlovich, a 12-year Air Force veteran with three tours of duty in Vietnam and a fistful of medals for meritorious service, walked into the office of his commanding officer at Langley Air Force Base in Virginia and presented him with a piece of paper. It said that Sergeant Matlovich was formally declaring himself as a homosexual and announced the intention of fighting the automatic discharge that such a declaration was sure to bring. Discharge proceedings were indeed begun, and Sergeant Matlovich's much-publicized appeal is now before a military court. Should he lose in the military, he will take the case to federal court, where, assisted by such organizations as the American Civil Liberties Union and the National Gay Task Force, he hopes to get a ruling that at long last will guarantee the right of gay men and women to serve in the armed forces of the United States. Leonard Matlovich is my guest this evening for a discussion. And Lenny, you come from an Air Force family, don't you? Right. My father spent uh, 32 years in the Air Force. And again, you know, everything that I am and everything I hope to be, I owe to the United States Air Force. I was, <laughs> I'm serious. I was born on Air Force Base. I graduated from an Air Force high school in England. And all my education has been through the United States Air Force. And once again, what I've done turning myself in, I owe to the, something connected to the Air Force called Air Force Times Family Magazine. They published an article on homosexuals in uniform, and it was a very inspiring article. Although the article in the beginning said they didn't think gays should stay in the service, it was the most supportive article I have ever read. I remember reading it myself. Right. It was a whole big magazine section that entirely was taken up with descriptions of rather happy uh, situations of gay people who were lovers in the service, and right. and uh, all about how uh, the armed services of many other countries uh, had no trouble accommodating gay 
people in them and so forth and so forth. Wasn't that the case? Exactly. That was a revelation to you, wasn't it? Revelation. Well, it was, yes, but it wasn't because I had already come out. Uh, I already started going to gay bars when the article was out. But it, it was my first positive media that I've ever read about homosexuals. I, I, first of all, coming from the Air Force Times, I was floored. I couldn't believe it. And so was I when I read it. <laughs> <laughs> and in the article, it mentioned a man by the name of Dr. Frank Kameny. So one night, I was just sitting down watching television. I had a brainstorm. Why don't I call Dr. Kameny and just find out exactly what's happening in the gay community? So I called Frank Kameny, uh, for those of you in the audience who don't know, is a pioneer uh, gay liberation person who was uh, the founder of the Mattachine Society of Washington and a member of the board of the National Gay Task Force and a person who has pioneered in legal action against uh, discrimination against gay people. And in that article, it mentioned the kind of work that he was doing. Right. So one night I was watching TV, and I brainstormed to call him. I called uh, Long Distance Information in D.C., and I said, I know his name's not going to be listed. I was just shocked when it was. So I was talking to him on the phone. I asked him, I explained my situation. I didn't tell him I was gay, though. I played straight on the phone to him. I told him that... Um, I was a tech sergeant in the Air Force, and I was a race relations instructor, and I talked about homosexuality in the classroom, and I was just interested for my students' sake, not for my sake now, but for my students' sake, what was going on in the gay community, what legal battles were going on. He explained all these things to me, and then I said to him, well, exactly what type of military case are you looking for? And he said, well, we're looking for a military person, man or woman, who is career, who is willing to come forward public and say, yes, I'm gay, but I want to stay in the armed forces. And I said to Dr. Kameny, well, uh, I might have an individual in mind for you. I'll talk to him and find out. Of course, I was talking about myself all this time. And luckily, I, I was stationed in Florida at the time, and luckily the Air Force sent me TDY, which is temporary duty, for two months to Virginia, which was 200 miles from D.C. So during that period of time, was, there was an opportunity for me to get to Washington, D.C. to discuss things with Dr. Kameny, and I met with the ACLU lawyer, David Adelstone, and at the time, they said, this is a big decision on your part, you've got 11 years in, think about it, it took me a year to think about it. Well, tell me some of the things that you uh, thought about during that year. Well, they told me that they thought in order to win, we'd have to go public, and I thought about family. I thought about, well, who's going to hire a faggot? Who's going to hire a queer that's known throughout the country? What type of work I was going to do when I got out? Oh, just millions of things. My straight friends, would I ever have a friend again? How would my gay friends treat me? Would I ever be allowed to go home to my parents again? Would they want me? Just With all of that negative stuff, how did you decide to finally do it? That's a very difficult question. It's, I guess, just my nature that I see something that's wrong and being in the classroom day after day after day, reading Air Force literature that was saying equality for all, uh, one Air Force uh, Air Force regulation in the 30-1 says that those who discriminate by fact or by inference are not fit to command or supervise. I believe this stuff. And the more I read it, the more I believed in it. And I felt as if here I am in the classroom teaching all these things, yet I am being a hypocrite. I felt that there was much more than that for 30 years I lived my life for my parents to make them happy, and I had to start living my life for myself and make me happy. So you just upped and went after that year. Was there some particular incident that made you decide that just suddenly to go, or what happened? Well, not really. It was just um, 
teaching equality and justice over and over again, and for the black person, for the red person, for women, for every minority you could mention. In that classroom, I was a fire and brimstone teacher, you know, equality and justice for them, equality and justice. But when it came to the gay person, I only went halfway. The more I only went halfway, the more I knew I had to go the full measure all the way. I have no regrets whatsoever. I would do it again and again and again and again. So you went to Washington and you got the got piece the letter, of paper. And I still hadn't made the decision to do it. And I didn't make the decision to do it until I gave it to my supervisor. He, was, he walked into the office and he was standing. And I said, um, Captain Collins, you should sit down. He said, why? I said, well, I got something I want you to read and I think you should sit down. Well, he wouldn't sit down. I handed him the piece of paper. And he read it, and then he said to me, well, what does this mean? First of all, well, the expression, I wish I had a camera just to film his face. It was something else. The expression on his face, his eyes must have got, uh, they were big around as footballs, he just, or baseball. He just looked at it. He said, what does this mean? And I said, it means uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, equality and justice for all. And that's the, the court decision on uh, segregated schools are unconstitutional. I said, this is that I am a race relations instructor and I'm doing my job. I see something is wrong, it has to be corrected. And here we are. But they did decide to discharge you, didn't they? Well, I'm not discharged yet. The discharge date has not been set. My squadron commander decided that I should be discharged for the best interests of the Air Force. I requested a board hearing. The board will meet on the 16th of September, and a decision will be made then. It will be reviewed by higher authorities. I have very, very little hope of winning whatsoever in the Air Force. I have great hopes of winning in the courts. I just hope, of course, that you win your taste well, because I think that discrimination is an abomination. Okay, you're just, right. There's no. I just wonder uh, what the consequences of opening up a bastion of our patriarchal society to the revolutionary uh, potential of gay people will be. And maybe uh, if in a while you've won and you're, you're in it and you've begun to change even more than you have, certainly you've come a very long way in, in two or three years. You're right, and I have a very, very long way to go as a human being. I, I, I'm just on the threshold of something I right now cannot even comprehend that's ahead of me. I have no idea where my mind is going to go from here. Uh, our time is just about up, and I want to thank you very much for being with me this evening. Believe me, Ron, it was my pleasure. And my guest today was Air Force Sergeant Leonard Matlovich, whose test case will hopefully guarantee the right of gay citizens to serve in any job for which they qualify, including jobs in the armed services. Leonard Philip Matlovich was never reinstated to the military. He died June 22, 1988. His tombstone, meant to be a memorial to all gay veterans, does not bear his name. It reads, When I was in the military, they gave me a medal for killing two men and a discharge for loving one. The 2003 film Soldier's Girl was about the murder of Private First Class Barry Winchell, who fellow soldiers thought was gay because of his involvement with transgender entertainer Calpurnia Adams. The murder became a point of reference in the ongoing debate over the don't ask, don't tell policy. In the pre-dawn hours of July 5, 1999, inside an infantry barracks at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, 21-year-old Private First Class Barry Winchell was beaten to death with a baseball bat. 
This horrific murder at the hands of fellow soldiers was the culmination of ongoing harassment that under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Winchell was unable to report without jeopardizing his military career. A new film called Soldier's Girl recounts Winchell's courtship of transgendered entertainer Calpurnia Adams and the events leading up to his tragic death. The screenplay for this poignant film is by Ron Neiswanner, the man who wrote Philadelphia. There were two murderers, Justin Fisher and Calvin Glover. Justin was the motivator and Calvin was almost, we, we referred to him eventually as the weapon. Do you think a homosexual can be loyal to his unit? No. I, I don't see how a homosexual can be loyal. Because he'd always have this agenda to try and hump you, right? Right. I mean, he'd always be trying to have sex with you and stuff. So you should probably talk to Diaz about it. Okay. Talk to him about what? Well, about having homosexuals in our company. We do? One of the guys in our unit spends a lot of time at this club for deviants. Yeah? And I'm pretty sure that he gave someone fellatio in that club. Well, tell me who it is, because I, I can take care of that sort of thing. When you start to look at Justin and Calvin's backgrounds, you look at where they came from, what their family lives were like before they went into the military, what you see is that you see two young men of different degrees of sociopathy. Calvin is, is borderline retarded and probably could be manipulated into doing anything. Justin is, as many psychopathic people can be, is brilliant and incredibly charming, very manipulative, and I think ultimately really, really, really tortured. And I think it was his deep, 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 deep self-loathing that drove him to help murder Barry Winchell. And also, I think what happened is that Justin found in Barry Winchell someone who accepted him. There was even an incident when Justin and Barry got into a fight in their room, and Justin had picked up a metal dustpan and had beaten Barry in the head with it and caused Barry had to get several stitches. And then they were asked, each were asked individually, after that incident, do you want to separate? And they each said, according to the sergeant who asked the question, no, we like each other. It was just a fight that got out of hand. I saw that as Barry's incredible compassion for everybody around him, and that he had compassion for Justin Fisher, too. And, you know, unfortunately, perhaps he shouldn't have. You know, perhaps if he had had a little less compassion and a little less acceptance, he'd be alive. But Soldier's Girl is not just about Barry Winchell's death. It's about his approach to life, and perhaps most of all, it's a love story. My name's Calpurnia Adams. People like to be able to put you in a box and then put you on the shelf and move on, but I think that's why transgender women scare society at large. They're, what does this mean about me if I'm attracted to her? And it's tough, you know, because Barry had only ever dated girls, and he was, as far as I knew, only attracted to women. And I really hesitate at, at calling Barry gay, but since I was pre-operative at the time, a lot of people have their own thoughts about what his sexuality was. Meeting Barry changed my life in that Barry was my first relationship as a woman. He was the first man to just sort of take me at face value as a woman and treat me that way after Barry's murder and all the, the media attention. I felt like I was in a cocoon and somebody had just ripped it open before I was ready and everybody was just like looking at me and saying, you know, she doesn't look that much like a woman or she's not that pretty or 
What did he see in her? And it was really one more awful thing on top of the whole awful situation to be judged like that before you're ready. One irony of what happened to P.F.C. Winchell is that he loved the military. Barry was Soldier of the Month. He was learning disabled, and yet he carried his manuals with him everywhere and studied all the time. You know, that that stuff is, is really complicated, and he wanted to be a helicopter pilot, so he was studying for a special program above and beyond his regular duties, and he was already, you know, top gun in his company, one of the, the best at his artillery specialty. Barry would sit in my dressing room underneath my rack of clothes and just study his manuals while I would get ready and go on stage and stuff. He he was so committed, and they really let a good one slip through their fingers by not doing things the way they should have on that base. Faggot, faggot, down the street. Faggot, faggot, down the street. You can't hide your still dead meat. You can't hide your still dead meat. The film is about unconditional love, which I actually think is the most important thing that we can make art about. Screenwriter Ron Neiswanner. There was a point Calpurnia Adams knew was coming in a relationship with Barry, which is that there was a point at which they were going to have to really face the fact that when they got into bed together, there were two penises. And she worried and worried and worried about it. And when finally they face that moment, Barry is full of acceptance. Calpurnia continued past that point to say, you know, I'm going to have the operation someday. And Barry Winchell said, no, don't. You don't need to have this operation. I like you just the way you are. Capernia believes that she'll never hear that again. As a matter of fact, she has proceeded with her surgery because she believes that she was never going to meet anyone like Barry who would accept her like that. But to me, that's such an example of complete acceptance and unconditional love. So I'd rather that people take away that example of love. If they can take away more than that, I hope they also get pretty angry about Don't Ask, Don't Tell. The people who created Don't Ask, Don't Tell bear some responsibility for Barry Winchell's death. There is no question in my mind. Gay, straight, or transgendered, the message of Soldier's Girl is universal. There's a whole range of sexuality, and all we really want is to live our lives and be happy and have love, and anybody can empathize with that. In December 1999, 18-year-old Private Calvin Glover was found guilty of murdering PFC Barry Winchell and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. One month later, Winchell's former friend and roommate, Justin Fisher, 26, was sentenced to 12 and a half years in prison for his involvement in the murder. For more information on Calpurnia Adams, visit her website at calpurnia.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. If we always believe all the madness that we're taught, never questioning the rules that we're living lies we bought so long ago, how are they to know it's not who's wrong or right, it's just another way I don't want to fight, but no, I'm gonna stay.
Extreme Soldiers Girl on Amazon Prime or the Tubi app. We'll be back after this quick break. Don't go away. Doric Wilson, American playwright and activist, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born in 1939 in Los Angeles and raised on his grandfather's ranch in Washington State, Doric Wilson's early works would help establish the Coffeehouse Cafe Chino in Greenwich Village as the mecca of offbeat theater. A pioneer in gay theater, Wilson, along with others, helped form the first professional theater company, The Other Side of Silence, to accurately portray the gay experience. Wilson was among those present outside the Stonewall Inn during the riots for gay liberation and shortly thereafter became active in the Gay Activist Alliance. In 2004, Wilson's activism made him one of the Grand Marshals of the 35th Anniversary Pride Day Parade in New York City. Seven years later, he died of natural causes in his home in Manhattan at the age of 72. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Robert Friedline. Hello, I'm Armistead Maupin, author of Tales of the City, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm David Hunt, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. On September 24, 1982, the CDC used the term AIDS for Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome for the first time in its Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, and it released the first case definition for AIDS, a disease at least moderately predictive of a defect in cell-mediated immunity occurring in a person with no known cause for diminished resistance to that disease. But naming something doesn't make it any better, as we find out in this 1983 IMRU report. We are gathered together tonight for one purpose, to fight back against AIDS. The Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. This is not a gay disease. It is not a gay disease. I know that there's some horror stories about people with AIDS who have been disenfranchised of their basic rights. Their, their roommates have kicked them out. They've been served on paper plates. Their families have disowned them. Support the community. Help us deal with the panic because people are panicking. If we withdraw from one another and excoriate one another because of our guilt and our fear, we'll only add joy to the heart of every right-wing, Bible-thumping homophobe in America. We came up with our safe sex guidelines at a time of incredible panic and paranoia and just all-out hysteria. No one knew what the cause of AIDS was. The first patients that were getting sick were incredibly disfigured and incredibly grisly looking. Tonight, we are marching, as are others across America, and we shouldn't have to be. When I asked my doctor what my uh, mortality would be, <laughs> he didn't have an answer. Tonight, we are pleading for our lives and the future lives of Americans, and we should not have to be. It's very frightening to think more often than not I've read that the average lifespan is two years after diagnosis and I hate to think I'll lose my brother at 24. 
Good evening. This is the IMRU News Report for this Sunday, May 29, 1983. Topping our news tonight, three Los Angeles City Council members joined a crowd of nearly 5,000 at the Federal Building in Westwood last Thursday to demand more government funding for research into the AIDS epidemic. City Council President Joel Wax spoke out against the myth that AIDS is a concern only to gay men. You don't have to be Jewish to care about someone dying from Tay-Sachs disease. And you don't have to be black to care about someone dying from sickle cell anemia. And you don't have to be gay to care about someone dying from AIDS. All it takes is a little human decency. My name's Bill Bader, and I was diagnosed with AIDS last December. The worst part of having this disease for myself, and I think this is true for most other AIDS patients, is not the physical hassles. They're bad. But the worst part is the sense of isolation and the incredible loneliness and the times of indescribable hopelessness in combating this disease. But as I look out tonight and in talking to people before, all I felt was a sense of faith and hope and a lot of love coming from all you people. And right now, I don't feel any sense of isolation or loneliness, and I don't feel any sense of hopelessness. And it's this kind of concern, the kind that's brought you people here tonight, that makes me able to stand here and say, I know I'm going to win over this disease. against the disease has come a long way. We have prepped for prevention and much improved treatment regimens, but money still needs to be raised for support services. In fact, the Desert AIDS Project in Palm Springs kicks off its annual fundraising walk on October 30th. We, of course, are Team Sorted Lives, as playwright Del Shores is a frequent IMRU guest. And the last time the whole gang got together to walk, we were there. Within our ever-expanding LGBTQI community, there are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. We're at the Desert AIDS Wall 2019 here in Palm Springs. I'm walking with Team Sorted Lives, and one of the Sorted Lives film, as well as stage actor, and he's been in all incarnations of Sorted Lives. We have the incredible <laughs> Noel Alexander. Why do you walk for the Desert AIDS Project here on Team Sorted Lives? During this AIDS epidemic, I had a friend named John Allison who managed the Callboard Theater, which was an Amy Simple McPherson temple. When we first moved to LA, uh, I didn't know anybody, and we lived over in West Hollywood on Croft Street, which was like two blocks from John's theater. When I first came to town, I walked down and talked to him one day, and the guy was just so accepting of me and gave me hints, and I paint sets, and I do a little bit of artwork and stuff. Anyway, I did a couple of panels for him, big, big, tall, eight 
foot panels. He became my really first solid friend in LA. And one day somebody said, John's sick. And I said, really? Well, you know, what is it? And they said, yeah, we don't really know what it is. John died. And it was hard for me. I've worked with gay people my entire life. You know, my first job in advertising was uh, designing windows. People I worked with who were creative people who were gay. So it did, you know, it, it made absolutely no difference to me. John was really one of my really better friends. I don't walk for John, you know, I grieve for him, but I do walk for all those people who have been saved and who are being dealt with and who are being helped from this terrible epidemic. Boy, we were so scared living in West Hollywood. Boy, oh boy, this thing hit us like a brick. And we were losing people like crazy. And nobody knew, do you hug them? Do you give them a kiss? Can, you know, do you shake hands with, you know, with people that you suspect might have the disease? But uh, we outlasted it and uh, everybody pulled together. Now, you have an amazing connection to our Sorted Life's team captain, Del Shores. We first met Del when we were at the call board theater doing a bluegrass musical and uh, Dell's roommate at the time was doing a little replacement role and Dell came backstage and he said I saw in the bios that you were a friend of the Texas writer Preston Jones which I was and he said I think I write like Preston and uh, I, I, I said sure you do you know so he brought me a script play called Cheatin'. I read the play and the first three pages uh, were a monologue that I read and I just, I would have killed to get that role. So I helped Dell produce that first show, Rosemary and I did. Dell's remained a, a wonderful friend. Dell's my ex-son-in-law and uh, the dad of my two granddaughters. He and my daughter are best friends and you know everything is is on the up but boy he changed my life I'll tell you what I just really thank him for continuing to nurture me Dell says I think of you and Rosemary as my parents and I think of, of Dell as my leader he's got a huge flock we're gonna do some good well I tell you you're an inspiration for all of us keep punching out there man you got it, Coach. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers, and you're listening to my Team Sorted Lives interview from the 2019 Desert AIDS Walk in Palm Springs, California. I'm speaking with Rosemary Alexander. And Rosemary Alexander is the wife of Noel Alexander. How did you get from Sorted Lives, the movie, the play, the TV series, to Team Sorted Lives for Desert AIDS Walk, benefiting Desert AIDS Project for the Coachella Valley? Well, I'm sure that it probably started with Del Shores inviting us to come out and join the team because he always headed it up. And But over the years, we, we came out and did things with him. And then we were asked by Art Gregory, who heads up, he's one of the leaders of the Sorted Lives team here in Palm Springs. And uh, you become friends with other people and they invite you and include you. And ultimately, it leads, you know, many strings pulling together and they all attach themselves to your heart. You know, you just join up and then you create a new family. So these people are our family here now. Who do you walk for today? Well, I walk for the, the first delicious young man that I knew who was handsome and sweet and talented and working hard to become an actor in Dallas. His name was Johnny Cacciatore. 
I knew him and he was part of the community that I was working to be a part of. And years later, I became friends with his sister, Madonna Cacciatore. And I found out from her that he had died of AIDS very early on, probably about the time that we left Dallas and moved to Los Angeles. When there's a face, a really good person behind a name and a disease that has no heart and has no boundaries. You just have to say, what can we do about that? What can we do to help? You know, you can't touch everybody's life, but if you can help a few people, you know, I feel like the work we do here with Desert Aids, we raise a little bit of money, it helps a few people, and ultimately, you help a lot of people. You say you raise a little bit of money. Could you tell us how much money has Team Shorted Lives raised? Well, we have raised around $30,000. It's a little bit over that now. You know, the special relationship that you've maintained with Dell Shores and how that has evolved over the years. Might you give us a little bit of your perspective on, on how that relationship has grown? Newell worked in his first play. I understudied a role in his first play. I worked in his next five plays as an actor, and somewhere along the way he married one of our daughters, and they had two beautiful daughters together, and then of course, you know, if you know Del Shores, you know he's been out and claimed a life as a gay man um, ten years, I think, after he had married our daughter. And you know what? We understood. Del is, he's brilliant. He's kind-hearted, he's sincere, he is, he works so hard for his community. He was always great to have in the family. He helped, he babysat everybody's kids. He helped all the girls with their hair. He was always in the kitchen helping cook for big meals. And he just remained a part of the family. He's been a spectacular dad and always a great friend. It really is one big Sorted Lives family. It's true. We are a Sorted family, and he is our leader. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers, and you're listening to my Team Sorted Lives interview from the 2019 Desert AIDS Walk in Palm Springs, California. My name is Matt Hayes, a co-team captain of the Team Sorted Lies, uh, part of the Desert AIDS Project's annual AIDS Walk. So Matt Hayes, why do you walk in the Desert AIDS Walk? One of my best friends from college, he was the first person I ever knew that, that was diagnosed with HIV. Uh, and that, I will say that probably changed my life because it really opened my, my eyes to like, oh, this disease is out there. It's not so far removed like I thought it was. And then I've had some partners that were positive. I've been with them when they have found out their diagnosis. And, and watching someone um, question their worth and question their value. I, while there's not one person I walk for, there is a, a group of people in my mind that I do have in mind when I do these walks, for sure, and ask for money, not just for them, but for the you know people that came before them that maybe weren't so lucky, that are still um, struggling and, and succumbing to this awful, awful disease. Our local co-captain here, and also our number one fundraiser on our team is Art Gregoire. Why do you walk with Team Sorted Lives? Well, I walk with Team Sorted Lives because of the camaraderie, spirit, and passion of all of its team members led by Del Shores, because Del Shores is Sorted Lives. And he has embodied and, and, and given a passion to all of us to be on this walk and be part of this team. 
This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers, and you're listening to my Team Sorted Lives interview from the 2019 Desert AIDS Walk in Palm Springs, California. I'm speaking with the lovely, talented, vivacious Ann Walker. So, Ann Walker, how did you become a part of Team Sorted Lives? What's the sorted story behind this? Well, I ran into this guy named Del Shores back in 1992 or 3 and I read for him for his play Daddy's Done, He's Got the Will yeah that's the one and so I got to come and audition for him and I read really well but he gave it to somebody else then he called me back to do Daughters of the Lone Star State but to understudy how do you feel about that? I hate it and I explained to him I do not understudy anybody and nobody needs to understudy me because I'm not going to miss a performance. And then he wrote this part in the Sorted Lives play. What part was that? That would be LaVonda Dupree. LaVonda <laughs> <laughs> Dupree in Sorted Lives. Yes. And Walker, that is a signature role for you. Yes, it is. Just like I love Lucy, Lucille Ball, Ann Walker, LaVonda Dupree. How are there similarities with LaVonda and Ann Walker that gets Ann Walker to be part of the Desert Age Project's Desert Age Walk here in Palm Springs? Because I'm a lot like LaVonda Dupree. I live and I let live and I enjoy it and I celebrate everybody and their journey in life, whether they are gay or straight or bi or trans. The last time I was here, I did the uh, transgender group. I gave a speech. And it was a great speech, and it was so well-received. And I'm just so happy that we have to stick up for our sisters and brothers who are trans. And that's a whole nother part of this. I cannot stand the fact that there's still a group in the LGBT plus that is being so persecuted and killed for who they are. African-American sisters who have been killed just this year is a staggering 20 or 21 people. I, I want to get that stopped. I want to do anything I can to get that stopped because I'm, I'm just so, so attuned to that right now. Well, you know, the LGBTQIA+, and A would be ally, you're our ally. You're one of our greatest allies, and we need more, more people like you fighting the good fight alongside with us. And so with that in mind, you're here with Team Sorted Lives at the 2019 Desert Age Walk in Palm Springs. Is there anybody in particular that comes to mind that you're walking for today? Uh, one of my dear friends, Betty Murphy, our son Michael, he was in a company of Best Little Whorehouse. He was a dancer on Broadway, and then he went to Vegas. And at some point, he contracted HIV, and then it became AIDS, and he passed away. And so I walked for him and for my friend Betty Murphy because of the loss. I can't even fathom losing a child. It doesn't matter how you lose them. If they go away, you will feel the hurt forever. I have two children and I can't imagine my life. I would have to live in a cave or something if I lost a child. And she's gone on because that's what you do, but you have a hole in your heart. What keeps you coming back to the Desert Age Walk? Del Shores. <laughs> he makes me do it. <laughs> I don't have a choice. <laughs> I need his, you know, kick in the pants to get me going. And I'm happy to be here and happy to lend whatever I can to Desert Aids Project. Well, thank you for letting us 
into the sphere that we know as Ann Walker, because it's a beautiful place to be. Thank you, darling. I appreciate that. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Taylor Gray with IMRU on KPFK Radio. And you've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? Find a link to support Team Sorted Lives on the IMRU Radio Facebook page. Don't go away. We'll be back with Dan Savage after a quick break. American conductor and violinist Marin Alsop coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Marin Alsop was born in New York City in 1956. Both of her parents were professional musicians. She went on to earn a bachelor's and master's degree at the Juilliard School in violin and in 1981 founded the string ensemble called String Fever. Although men dominate the field of conducting, Alsop's strong persona opened doors to the podium. She's conducted the Colorado Symphony Orchestra and from 1988 to 1990 was associate conductor for the Richmond Symphony in Virginia. In 2007, she hit it big, appointed music director of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. It made her the first woman to assume the leadership of a major American orchestra. Alsop has spoken openly about her family, which includes her female companion, horn player Kristen Jerschik, and their son. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Virginia Gutierrez in Philadelphia. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry. The great Oscar Wilde once said, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. That's why it's imperative that we stay informed. So pull up your ears. An excellent way to do this is by listening to Southern California's longest-running radio program for the gay and lesbian community, IMRU. Welcome back. I'm David Hunt, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. The It Gets Better project was launched September 21, 2010, and after 11 years, it's still going strong. Unfortunately, it's still a necessary message. Steve Pride caught up with founder Dan Savage and filed this report. Dan Savage is author of the internationally syndicated Relationship and Sex column, Savage Love editorial director of the Seattle weekly newspaper, The Stranger, and a regular contributor to PRI's This American Life. But these days, he's even better known for a message that started a movement. Hi, everybody. It's me, Kathy. Hi, I'm Chris Colfer. Hey, what's up? I'm Jake Shears. Hi, I'm Tim Gunn, and I have a very important message for gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered, and questioning youth. And that is, it gets better. It really does. Hi, I'm Thomas Roberts from MSNBC, and I wanted to make this video for anybody out there who needs to know it gets better. I know personally firsthand that it does, and I know this because I understand how hard it is when you're struggling at school or at home, uh, when it seems that you're different and there's no one else out there like you, and no one's going to understand what's going on in your head. And then if you told them what's really going on, you fear that they wouldn't love you or be your friend anymore. And I know it because I went through all of it. Hey guys, I'm Justin Bieber. I just wanted to say there's nothing cool about being a bully. And if you're getting bullied, make sure to tell someone and, you know, it gets better. And if you're a bystander, make sure to step in and, you know, help out. I'm Dan Savage. How'd you go from sex advice columnist to our national spokes gay? <laughs> well, there's a lot of people who would object to my describing myself as the spokes gay. Stephen Colbert called me that once. 
you know, if nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. I speak for myself and I speak to gay issues and things I care about. I don't know how I went. You know, it's a mystery to me. I, I write the filthiest sex advice column in the world. I tell a lot of dirty jokes and I somehow parlayed that into the occasional sort of serious thumb sucker in the New York Times or the occasional, you know, heartfelt piece on This American Life. And uh, it amazes me. You would think, based on some of the things I've said and done and written over the years, that I would be kryptonite to mainstream media. But I think the mainstream has really shifted and uh, swamped me in the process. What inspired you to create the It Gets Better campaign? I was reading about the suicides of Justin Aberg and Billy Lucas and had the same reaction that so many queer adults have when we hear these stories. It's like, I wish I could have talked to that kid. I wished... I'd had access to that kid and been able to tell him that however bad it was right now, that as a commenter on my blog wrote, addressing Billy Lucas after his death, it gets better, things get better. But a lot of these queer kids, they don't know it, they don't realize it. They don't think, you know, a queer 14-year-old who kills himself is saying that he can't picture a future with enough joy in it to compensate for the pain he's in now. He's also saying that he may know that there are happy, content, safe, loved gay adults out there, but he doesn't know how you get from being the bullied queer kid to that gay adult, that secure, safe, happy gay adult, because he hasn't seen it in his own family. You know, a kid who's bullied because of his race, religion, class, goes home to family members, parents of the same race, same religion, same class, who got through exactly what they're getting through and are successful adults. Queer kid goes home to no role models, no examples. And so, you know, reading about Billy Lucas and feeling like, I wish I could do something, I wish I could talk to these kids, and feeling, I can't talk to these kids. I would never get permission from their parents to talk to them. And the, the kids who are queer who most need to hear from gay adults and get a message of hope from us about our lives and their lives and their futures are least likely to have the kind of parents who would allow them to talk to gay adults. And I was just doing on all this when it occurred to me that in the YouTube era, I didn't need permission from parents anymore to talk to their kids, whether they wanted us to or not, that I could record a video, use my column, use my podcast to encourage other LGBT adults to do the same and just look into a camera and talk to queer kids about our lives, about how we'd been there, the trials we faced in adolescence, the bullying we experienced, and how we got from there to where we are now and illuminate the path for them and give them some reassurance that however bad it is right now, that joy is coming their way and joy that will more than compensate for what they're suffering institutionalized homophobia plays a really big role in how kids feel about themselves. But on the federal level, we're making headway in a couple important areas. What impact will this make in the lives of gay kids? The difference that the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell is going to make in a lot of gay kids' lives is that military service has always been held out as a way for kids who are in bad circumstances, who are in poverty, who don't have a family that can pay for them to go to college can access those things, can get up and out of poverty, can get an education paid for. And all of that was closed to queer kids. So, you know, they would listen to the pitches, join the military, and you can go to college and know that that wasn't true for them. So that's a very real and immediate and tangible benefit to queer kids in the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. There's a lot of queer kids who now will have that option. I would prefer we lived in a country where people didn't have to join the military to have access to education, but you know, you go to school with the country you have, not the country you'd like to have, to spin a Donald Rumsfeldism in our direction. And when it comes to marriage and other rights, it makes a tremendous psychological difference to know that you are a full and equal citizen. And despite what you may be hearing from your peers or even your family members, the government is on your side, that you are 
entitled to the same rights and responsibilities and privileges as everyone else. And you're not unequal and you're not sinful and you're not unfit for marriage or unfit for military service or unfit for full civil equality. And that can be a boost. You and your partner were married in Vancouver. How did that change your relationship? I don't think my partner and I's decision to marry really changed our relationship. It affirmed what already existed. It affirmed the facts on the ground. We were married in our hearts. It actually changed the way some people saw our relationship, including our son. It meant a lot to him, even though he was pained by the experience of going to a wedding, going to our wedding, going to our wedding reception, uh, although people at the wedding reception besides Deej didn't know it was a wedding reception. Um, he now looks at his parents and goes, they're married. And it comes up every once in a while. Well, we'll, we'll joke about breaking up or we'll joke about uh, you know, being indifferent to one another, like Terry and I like just tease each other about, I couldn't care less about you. And DJ will go, no, no, you guys got married. And like a lot of kids, he really is tapped into that sort of bedrock security that that provides an assurance, you know, not a fail-safe assurance because a lot of couples who marry and have kids get divorced. But it says to him that we're committed to each other and committed to him and committed to being his parents and staying together. You know, he picked out our wedding rings, which I'm wearing right now, which have a skull on them. At a rocker store, we stopped in quickly to pick up some temporary wedding rings, and we're still wearing them seven years later. He picked out these rings that have a skull on them because marriage means you're married till you're dead, till death do you part. And he wanted us, every time we looked at our finger, to remember that Terry and I are not allowed to break up, that the only way we're ever going to not be married is if one of us dies. Well, actually, legally, you can't get divorced in your state. That's right. We're talking to Dan Savage, author of the Relationship and Sex column, Savage Love, editorial director of Seattle's The Stranger, a regular on PRI's This American Life, and creator of the It Gets Better campaign. Dan, what was it like for you as a teenager? I like to say I grew up in a Catholic and religious family. It's sort of two separate and distinct things. It was hard for me as a teenager. I thought about suicide. I wasn't as brutally bullied as my partner was. But I did think about suicide only in that I thought it would be easier for my parents to have a dead kid than a gay kid. That it would be the good Catholic boy, loving son, mama's boy thing to do just to end my life so they didn't have to ever know that they had a gay kid. And so it was hard when you know, I realized I didn't want to end my life and made up my mind that I was going to have to come out to them. It was hard. you know. For a long time I hid from them. The people I relied on the most and needed the most at the time in my life when I most needed adult input, advice, supervision, support, I couldn't go to. My brother Billy was bullied in the same middle school where I was bullied at the same time. We're very close in age. And he's straight. And he had it worse than I did. He was much more brutally bullied. And I called him when the It Gets Better campaign was launched and was going viral just to say, I remember that you had it worse than I did. I remember, don't think I forgot. And he said something really smart, very typically Billy. He said, yeah, I had it worse at school, but at the end of the day, I went home and I had mom and dad, and you didn't. And that's the difference for bullied queer kids compared to bullied straight kids, is we go home at the end of the day to parents who were either not out to and so we can't ask for their support, or who are also bullying us. And then we're dragged to churches on Sunday where we're bullied from the pulpit. Straight kids who are bullied at school go home to a shoulder to cry on, and then aren't dragged to a church on Sunday where they're told that God hates nerds and band geeks. And the isolation for queer kids is worse. What sort of feedback have you had from kids? The response has been overwhelming. We've heard from thousands and thousands of kids who've responded at itgetsbetter.org to us, who've responded at 
each individual video to the person who posted that video. We've heard from parents thanking us for creating the project because it allowed them to demonstrate to their gay kids that they supported them because they, they sat down at computers to watch these videos together. I've heard from parents who are in emergency rooms with their kids who attempted suicide and they're watching the videos, they're finally talking about their kids' sexuality and watching the videos and they're thanking us. Some of the stories we've heard are heartbreaking and some of them are really elating. You know, we heard from a girl who's being very brutally bullied by her family who watched a bunch of the videos and then they didn't just give her hope for her future, they gave her hope for her family, that her family would come around. Because so many of the videos are by people whose families had the same reaction hers did. When she came out, families reacted very negatively, very hostile, and who in time came around and became very loving and supportive. And so she watched the videos and didn't just think, okay, one day I'll be happy, one day I'll have friends who love and accept me. She watched the videos and thought, one day my parents won't be in the same place they're in right now. One day my parents will be better. And she sort of got hope. I mean, the whole point of the campaign was when we launched it, we you know, quoted Harvey Milk, you got to give them hope. And we've heard from so many kids who it's done just that, it's given them hope. There's never been a better time than right now to be a gay, lesbian, bi, or trans person in America. There are unfortunate incidents. There are always going to be hate crimes and always going to be jerks. The test is how the culture and society responds when there's been a wrong. Like, how does the society respond when someone's discriminated against because of their race or their religion or their sexuality? And increasingly, the society's response uh, when it encounters anti-gay discrimination is lining up with how our society responds when it encounters anti-anything else discrimination. There's unfinished business. Rights for trans people. Health care, I think, is a right. There's a lot left to do, but... You know, I just think of my own life. When I came out to my parents, when I was a teenager, I wasn't just telling them that I would kiss boys and I liked boys. I was also telling them I would never get married. I would never have children. I would have a very marginal career, if I had a career at all. I would never be a Marine. And just in my lifetime, all of that has changed. I am married. I have children. I have a great career. And now I can be a Marine if I wanted to be a Marine. I don't want to be a Marine, but I could be a Marine. And just knowing I could be a Marine makes a difference. The world is changing for gay people. What's next for the It Gets Better campaign? The It Gets Better campaign is now a standalone website at itgetsbetter.org. We've raised tens of thousands of dollars for the Trevor Project, which talks kids off the ledge. GLSEN, which helps improve environments in schools, so we have fewer queer kids crawling out on the ledge. And the ACLU's Lesbian and Gay Bi Trans Youth Project, which doesn't get the credit or support from the gay community that it deserves. They do tremendous work. And moving into the future, what we want to do is maintain the website, catalog and tag all the videos so that you know a trans kid can go to the website and call up all the trans videos and raise enough money to maintain the website and then every year around the beginning of school do some outreach, do some advertising. A lot of kids have found out about the It Gets Better campaign through People magazine and reports on the news and things in the newspaper and stuff on the radio and there's been a lot of talk about it. That chatter is going to die down. And so, you know, there's a kid who's four years old now who's going to be 14 in 10 years who may need to see these videos. We have to make sure that there's enough outreach and enough money for the outreach 10 years from now that that kid can find his way to the website. And kids are coming out at a younger and younger age. I knew, well, think about when you were 12. My son knew he was straight at like 10, 11. You know, my son had to come out to us about being straight. We had told him the odds were 95-ish percent that he would be straight, and we wouldn't be surprised if he was straight. But, you know, there was a moment where he's like, yeah, yeah, I, I'm straight. 
And nobody's surprised when a, ten, when a 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old kid knows he's straight. But even gay people are surprised when a kid that young knows he's gay. This has been a conversation with husband, father, author, activist, Dan Savage. For more information online, check out itgetsbetter.org. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. I know you're lonely, but please know that you're not The only kid out there who's been in that spot My friends and I made Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm David Hunt. Our thanks to IMRU executive producer Steve Pride and Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. So you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also, catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. So long. My mama told me when I was young, we're all born superstars. She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on in the glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said cause he made you perfect baby So hold your head up girl and you'll go far Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way Cause God makes no mistake I'm on the right track Baby I was born this way Don't hide yourself in regret Just love yourself and you're set I'm on the right track Baby I was born this way Oh yeah I'm on the right track Baby I was born this way (laughs) 